This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live from Fan Expo Canada in beautiful downtown Toronto. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode includes... Tabletop and adventure gaming. How to write good. History. Movies. Occultism. And of course, food. Food. And now on a very special episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, we have a very special sponsorship. Together with Pelgrane Press, the Bundle of Holding is presenting a limited-time Bundle of Gumshoe, which is good through Saturday, September 28th. Pay what you want for this core collection of PDF rulebooks and Ken Robin emanations. Ashen Stars, Mutant City Blues, C. Page XX Volume 1, and the first four issues of Ken Writes About Stuff Plus a one-year KWAS subscription. All of these are the current editions, no copy protection, all the errata. Could you possibly ask for an ad more relevant to Ken and Robin Talks About Stuff? If you pay higher than the current average price, you also get the bonus books, Knight's Black Agents and the Zelazhny Quartet. More titles will be added as the bundle continues, as is the standard practice there at Bundle of Holding. So if you buy now, you'll get them automatically onto your download page when they've been added. 10% of your payment goes to two charities chosen by Pelgrane Press honcho Simon Rogers, the Cochrane Library, and Cancer Research UK. And, you know, if the UK solves cancer, the rest of us benefit. That's true, because they are giving, sharing people there. Also, obviously, uh, like other bundles of holding, you can put all the money into charity and just cause cancer research to be researched even more faster. And speaking of other bundles of holding, more of them are in the often, and some of them just might feature other games by Ken and or Robin. So sign up for the mailing list at bundleofholding.com. You could not ask for a better deal, could you? No, it's pretty much perfect. So before we get started with your questions... Uh, thank you, everybody, for showing up. First, uh, uh, how many he- people here are actually familiar with our podcasts? Okay, almost everybody. So I, I envisioned that is often typical for Fan Expo that there would be about half people who know where and who they are and half people who've wandered in by accident. Uh, so uh, if, if you've wandered in by accident, this is the sort of podcast we do, except with fewer people in it normally. And so we're going to throw it open to your questions, on which we will opine. Uh, but first, uh, if things ever hit a lull, one of our longtime listeners, Calov Tate uh, from the UK, uh, provided us for our Dragon Meat Live episode his exciting nerd trope cards. And this is two sets of cards, uh, one of which contains some sort of historical element and another which contains some sort of geeky element and we just pull random cards and then Ken from the vast reservoir of genre and historical knowledge some of it true uh, riffs on these two things and puts them together so uh, we're going to start off with an inaugural nerd trope Aristotle Aristotle. Uh, I was going to ask you to maybe uh, explain uh, the historical reference, but we all know who we're all friends here. We know who Aristotle is. And dragons. How does Aristotle relate to dragons, Ken? That's actually relatively simple because obviously Aristotle, at the uh, time that he was writing, one of the things that he was doing was preparing a summa of all knowledge, uh, much of which we have and some of which we don't, which seems 
you know, a little thoughtless. I mean, Aristotle has gone to the trouble, prepared a summa of all knowledge, and then you lose half of it. That's just, right. It's, it's not the way. And it wasn't his mom that threw it out either. It was, I, I keep waiting for his uh, treatise on anime to resurface. Well, you know, Ar- Aristotle knew as much about anime as anyone did in the 4th century B.C. Or, yes. Or, it's not or, his fault. Or, or about as much as I do now. Right, yeah. It's <laughs> roughly the same thing. So, obviously, there is an Arist- somewhere in the lost corpus of Aristotle's work, there is Aristotle's, whatever Greek is, De Dracone, except it wouldn't be De, because that's Latin. But Dracon, by the way, is Greek, so there. Take that, Latin. Um, so, Anyway, he's got the, the De Dracone, which is a lost Aristotle manuscript, and as lost manuscripts are, it is not actually lost. It was hidden, uh, possibly by the dragons who move among us unseen, the reptoids, possibly by the um, masters of the art of dragon control or dragon summoning, who did not want Aristotle to uh, sort of uh, bogart their deal and blow their secrets. Uh, they may have killed him. I don't know. I'm not saying they did. I'm not saying they didn't. But he died, so draw your own conclusions. Well, uh, typically, the uh, classic Greeks all died in uh, poetically appropriate and perhaps fictional ways. Yes. Uh, so, for it's... example, uh, Euripides, who was a, a, a big stirrer of the pot, uh, was uh, supposedly torn apart by wolves, I believe, in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophocles, on the other hand, who is a uh, learned man celebrated for his noggin, and according to legend, uh, died when an eagle dropped a turtle on his head and crushed his skull in. Mistaking it for a rock. Yes. Um, so presumably the, the Aristotle death is some sort of cover story. And perhaps yes. these are all cover stories. Perhaps dragons killed all of the great Greeks. That's right. And, or killed them. Or faked their deaths and then covered them up right, with course, delightful stories. You, you don't, yeah, if you've killed them, you don't need to fake their death. They're, right, yeah. You, you don't need they, a cover they just story. Be dead, right. so, so obviously what it was was they swapped in uh, stooges to be killed in hilarious ways. There was a Greek painter who uh, burst a blood vessel laughing at a drawing he made. I forget, it wasn't Apelles. It was the other one. Um, and uh, so, the, so these guys have all been sort of gathered up by the dragons in their Central Asian fastness. Right. And are um, uh, basically... Uh, Similar to the secret team of radio inventors and electrical scientists, uh, the group of 97 that is in the Colombian or Venezuelan mountains that uh, kidnapped Marconi when Marconi faked his death so as to avoid working for Mussolini. Uh, So it's Marconi's secret band there in the the Colombian Andes and the dragons with the uh, ancient Greek wisdom, and obviously they are conducting a secret war to determine which paradigm of physics is correct. Right. Because if modern physics is correct, there can't be dragons. Because they would catch themselves on fire and fall out of the sky. Yeah, and you wouldn't want that. Uh, so presumably, well, certainly not if you're a dragon. Right. I, so, I, can, I can see, you know, an opinion going the other well, way. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess personally, I would prefer not to have dragons. Yeah. Um, but if you're the That's dragon, because you sit on your Im- immense hoard of treasure. Well, yes. We're not. We're not talking about who is and isn't a dragon. Right. Nobody's coming out of the dragon closet today. Right. Uh, but let's say. Let's by say treasure, that, I mean DVDs. Yes. Let, let, let's say that some of us were dragons. And let's say that some of us uh, wanted to actually, you know, rather than to destroy Aristotle and Euripides and Aeschylus and the lot, we wanted to preserve their knowledge. We probably, you know, we might just have infused them with some dragon blood to render them immortal. Right. Uh, So uh, what are they up to today? Uh, Well, like I said, they are attempting to recreate the paradigm that existed back in classical Greece when Aristotle knew everything about everything. And they're uh, attempting simultaneously... Uh, sort of to do an end around uh, Newtonian and then Einsteinian physics by uh, going out into the sort of uh, super strings and quantum theories right. and fogs and things where basically anything might be true as long as it's at a small enough subatomic level. 
right? There's things that are simultaneous across uh, great distance now. There's, um, uh, uh, there, there are particles that react at, before a cause. Uh, so basically, if, if, the, if the dragons and their immortal Greek classic servitors drill down deep enough into quantum physics, right. they're going to then justify dragons again, exactly, and then look at Porter error. Basically, they're going to <laughs> they're they're going to uh, to uh, to collapse the wave function, and uh, the equations will come back up the other way, and suddenly uh, Greek uh, Aristotle's inertia will be true that inertia slows with distance. Uh, you're going to have uh, uh, gravity will make harder thing, uh, heavier things fall faster. Uh, the, just the whole uh, Megillah will, will come swinging around, and the dragons will be set to take advantage of that with their, um, you know, not falling as fast as heavy things policy. Right. And also, presumably, in their spare time, the Aristotelian masters are, like our friend Jonathan Tweet, top Wikipedia editors. Right. Yes. Well, that's, that's one of the way, many ways that they're... Con- I mean, first of all... Uh, there's the anime. There's the everyone sort of believing, you know, all this nonsense. Uh, there's your Wikipedia's. There's your general sort of quantum fogging, I guess, of uh, of popular culture of education. Of so you're so so here at this very show at Fan Expo, the people dressing in costumes out there are unwittingly doing the bidding of the dragons. I'd say most of them are unwittingly doing the bidding of the dragons. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And as to those who are doing so wittingly, we're. We're not going to discuss. Yeah, we we don't make who judgments. That might and might not be. So now that we've cleared Species that traders. up, uh, any questions from the audience? So the question here ties into the horrible Cronut hamburger crisis that has struck Toronto at our Canadian National Exhibition, where at least 150 people have been stricken seriously ill because they thought it would be a good idea to eat something called the Cronut cheeseburger, <laughs> which is. Uh, Sort of one of those examples you get to in life of uh, sin and punishment occurring uh, simultaneously. So, uh, Ken, do any famous food poisoning and history stories come to mind? Um, the first, uh, the, the, it's not so much a poisoning, but soft serve ice cream, of course, came about because it was a very hot summer in uh, downstate Illinois, and a guy was driving around selling ice cream, and it melted, and it turned out the melted ice cream sold much faster than the not melted ice cream ever had. And so he invented soft serve as a result of that. And you can see plenty of, I mean, obviously the other classic example of uh, beneficent poisoning is penicillin being discovered when Alexander Fleming leaves his Petri dishes out uh, because he was sloppy and uh, suddenly all of his bacteria were dying. And rather than throwing it out, he, was, he remembered that that was sort of his job. And he, um, uh, he isolated the penicillin. So you have, you, have, you have cases of that. I'm sure that there are cases where individual food poisonings have, uh, you know, uh, moved things one way or the other. We obviously don't know, for example, uh, why uh, Napoleon wasn't able to get up on his horse at uh, Waterloo. Why he sort of, uh, normally what Napoleon would do is he would ride around the battlefield as much as he possibly could and understand where, what all the, the layout of the land was, uh, various Historians have blamed hemorrhoids or other uh, situations, but given his, uh, his sort of neglect of his diet, as most of your better dictators do, he, uh, he probably had some sort of gastrointestinal distress that made him unable to ride around Waterloo. There's another possibility that uh, Robert E. Lee had the same thing happen to him at Gettysburg. I mean, not that he was eating Napoleon's food, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, if he was eating Napoleon's food, that would have explained that it. That would have explained it. Um, and it was, uh, as a matter of fact... The general habit of, the, of, of uh, rations of going bad, when the revolutionary commissaries took over, they weren't actually very good at anything because they were peasants who were promoted for not being aristocrats. And that normally, you know, aristocrats aren't good at anything anyway. But 
the, uh, the, the system as such as it was had broken down, and that is why Napoleon's uh, troops pioneered canned goods. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the canning of food is a, is a Napoleonic military invention. And, and so the, the, the sort of in a way, the propensity of food to go bad and, and, and stifle uh, uh, campaigning is, is what caused the canned food industry to begin in the first place and also what enabled Napoleon to um, march farther with less uh, impact on the land than other uh, soldiers before him. It, it shortened the supply chain. Right. Um, also, as far as food poisoning goes, uh, many a Roman Empire emperor mm. uh, died from eating bad clams. Right. Uh, now, in some of those cases, it was like, bad clam! <laughs> yes. But in other cases, they did probably actually die from bad clams, and well, also in, in, lots of medieval rulers who would uh, eat feasts of uh, they, they, gilded they, food, yes, which turns out to be just as bad as a cronut burger. And I, believe, I believe it was um, uh, one of the Edwards that died of a surfeit of eels. Which, first of all, it, it sounds like it should be a dish just by itself. Right. Or, or, or a surfeit of eels. Yeah, or, or a Sisters of Mercy cover band. It's not an either or. And so, the, um, uh, and so, and so you have a, a number of that. In terms of actual uh, f- uh, food poisoning uh, outbreaks, botulism, killing people, one of the many advantages of being rich and powerful is you don't have to eat the botulism food. <laughs> <laughs> and so... The, um, the, the, it, it generally kills um, uh, your, your sort of uh, you know, innocent Canadian cronut. Well, I guess they're not innocent, as you pointed out. Right, but, yes. but your, uh, your, your they're, they're run-of-the-mill the your, your run Canadian cronut burger enjoyers as opposed to uh, your, your uh, kings and prime ministers and such. Although, um, Zachary Taylor uh, apparently died of eating cherries in milk. And that has never killed anyone before or yes. since. Which is why one of Zachary Taylor's descendants had him dug up to see if he had been poisoned by slave owners. But apparently he was not poisoned, of slave, by, poisoned by slave owners. The milk was probably bad, is what actually probably happened. Right, and, and this will be uh, part of our upcoming book, uh, Top Wussy-Ass Deaths of History. Yes, which is odd because Zachary Taylor was so not wussy-ass. That it, he, him dying of um, uh, cherries and milk is like Adela the Hun. Uh, dying of a burst blood vessel while having sex with uh, his 500th wife. Which, I guess, if you have to go. Uh, it's, be- it's better than 499 because it's yeah. a round number. Right. Although there is a terrific book called The Murder of Adela the Hun, which says, of course, that he was killed by the Byzantines. Just to be Byzantine about it. Which is it's a really good book. I mean, it's, it's super good just on Adela the Hun in general. Even if the theory is... Well, I mean, obviously you can't prove it one way or the other because there's about three contemporary sources, and none of them were written by Huns. <laughs> the, 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 the Hunnish medical examiner did not come right out and rush something into print. Uh, another question, please. So the question is, tell us, Ken, about the occult lore of the Netherlands. Well, um, my favorite occult thing that happened in the Netherlands is probably the alchemist demonstrating the uh, elixir vitae to... Oh, and I'm, I'm, I may screw this up. It's uh, one of the Dutch fathers of science. It's, I think it's Christian Huygens that was, uh, he was at, at court at some, you know, emperor's court or wherever it was. And they had an alchemist there and the alchemist did his, you know, sleight of hand thing where he demonstrates the elixir vitae that turns uh, lead into gold. And Christian Huygens played the uh, sap part of, you know, hey, uh, the Dutch astronomer that I've never met before, will you come up here and examine my materials and see that there's no possible way I can substitute <laughs> the pre- a prepositioned nugget of, of gold for this lead item? And Christian Huygens comes up and, you know, no, this as an astronomer, I'm used to looking at uh, alchemical equipment, and I can tell you this is, you know, completely tamper-free. And then it turned into gold, and he spent 
a lot of his later career, it was Van Helmont. It was not Huygens. It was Van Helmont. So it was an actual chemist. Spent a lot of his later career trying to basically duplicate a magic trick that he'd seen, <laughs> which I, I think is one of those sort of great stories about early science where they, um, uh, you know, well, the experimental data is mixed. <laughs> right. Yeah. In, in one case out of 100, a guy was able to use this to, to make lead into, lead into gold, but so far... <laughs> Yeah, well, that'll never happen again, except for cold fusion. Yes, right. And uh, poly water. Yes. <laughs> and the list goes on and on. Um, yeah, so I think, I think uh, Van Helmont and the Alchemist is probably my favorite uh, Dutch occult story, but uh, obviously the Dutch uh, overproduced history, uh, being the Dutch, and there are, there are lots of other sort of similar type examples from that uh, 15th and 16th century era. Uh, another question. Um, sorry, if, if people are not, I'm not sure how much the recorder is going to. So the question is, if you have an iconic character in a role-playing game, what do you do instead of giving them more money and stuff in order to allow them to progress? And an iconic character is a character who does not change over time the way a dramatic character does, but continues to restore order to the world by remaining true to themselves. And so, for example, if you look at Conan, he is, I would argue, he is very much an iconic character, but he goes through an outward arc of accumulating more and more stuff and becoming a king, but always remains Conan. And that his, you know, part of his Conan-ness is that he is destined to become a king. And part of that destiny is the fact that the king story came first and then Howard filled in the earlier stories. So if you look at whatever more stuff a role-playing system gives a character other than whatever character development or additional plot hooks are surrounding them, look at ways to just say, well, this just makes you more you. So one way to do that is to look at what way, or, you know, Batman, for example, accumulates more and more stuff that makes him more Batman over the course of all these different continuities. So, you know, instead of getting a random uh, sword or gun, Batman gets a Batarang. And, of course, in this case, he's not just finding it, he's building it. So part of that would be about getting, giving the character, or the, sorry, the player, license to decide what additional stuff and reward they get. And so if they get a bunch of money and decide to do something with it, um, help point them in the direction of doing something that, you know, continues to reify that central iconic ethos. So it's like, well, time to build a bat cave, time to make you more of who you were all along. And some of that's already innate in the, in the system and certainly in the way the system is played, right? If you've got a, a party that's a cleric and a thief and a fighter, by some odd coincidence, the three magic items that are there are going to be a, a phylactery of extra spells and a, uh, you know, boots of silent moving and a plus two sword. It, it, the, the treasure is sort of pre, uh, pre-refined to make an iconic character, or at least one in a character class, live up to themselves. The tricky part is if there is a second component to their iconicness besides just, I'm a fighter, I kill things with a sword, and so obviously a better sword is the reward each time. If that fighter has a second thing that they are always true to, then uh, both the GM and the player need to be alert to getting rewards that enable that to happen. So if their iconic thing is, I, I always protect, uh, you know, I, pr I protect women in the weak, right, if they're like an Arthurian knight, uh, then your reward in some ways is to have a greater role in the kingdom as a protector of women in the weak. Maybe you are the, you know, you become the landlord, uh, the, the titular uh, landlord of, over a, a nunnery or something. And now you have a whole manse, a domain of, of, of women in the weak that you have to protect. And that makes you more you, even if it's, you know, not necessarily a plus five sword to smite people who are attacking women or the weak. I sense a pause in the action. So World War I, objects of power. 
That is the weak nerd, nerd trope right there. You've got to do something better than that. There World War One ninja. Ninja, all right. Much better. Uh, I don't know if any of you ever saw the movie Ninja Assassin, but it is well worth the seeing. I mean, first of all, it says, right, it's, it's one of those, what you, what you see on the side of the box is what's in the box. This is a movie about a ninja assassin. One of my favorite things about it comes in about, you know, sort of the second act turn where the uh, Interpol lady has come to her boss and has said, I've gone through these records of assassinations going back to, you know, 400 years and gold transfers out of banks in Switzerland. And every one of these assassinations is accompanied by a transfer of 100 pounds of gold or whatever the amount is to this one, you know, bank in, in Japan. And I think that there may be an international conspiracy of ninjas that has been killing people for 400 years. And her boss... If in only the movie, they had ninja accountants, she never would right. have tweaked to them. Well, that's what it is, right? They have to move through the Western accounting, and so therefore they are weak. But her, her, in my, in my, possibly my favorite bit in that movie, and there are a lot of great bits in that movie, uh, her boss says, well, that's an interesting theory. I'll bet that probably checks out. You have leave to go investigate it. And it's, what? <laughs> <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> And, and that that bit alone makes it worth it. And so my theory is that if you've got ninjas and World War One, the thing that we know about World War One started by an assassination, and it was started by an assassination that literally had to be doubly and triply engineered to happen because the actual assassins involved, the Black Hand, were so bad at assassinating. I mean, they had the gun that wouldn't go off, and they had the wrong route, and they didn't know where the Archduke was at any given time, and they hadn't registered under fake names, and they had no exfil plan. They literally were Serbian terrorists who just sort of checked into the Bosnian hotel there in Sarajevo and said... Hi, we're the Black Hand. Do you have a reservation for us? <laughs> and then they stood along the old parade route with a non-functional gun and got sad and impatient. And then Gavriel Princip takes his, his, I think it was his gun or his bomb, whichever it was that he had. And he goes off to get, you know, a donut or something. And th it's at that point that the Archduke's car goes by because the Archduke has changed his route and he sort of... Well, he was coming, coming by for donuts. Right, yeah. He, he, he opportunistically... Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that he, he, he fires the gun, and then the, the chauffeur, rather than just stepping on the gas, decides to back up. And like, that's the solution <laughs> if you're in a parade and someone has, has shot the Archduke. And so his decision to back up causes sort of a, a, a two- or three-car pileup, giving him a chance to let loose with the bomb. If you look into other assassinations, the assassination of Heydrich was similarly screwed up. And it was only Heydrich's insistence on chasing the assassin on foot that actually killed him because pieces of the uh, car seat that had been blown into him by the explosion uh, then had a chance to work their way into his bloodstream. But the, uh, but the specifics of the assassination of, uh, of the Archduke, uh, Franz Ferdinand, really argue that there is a, a hand working to manipulate the black hand into doing this. And you can imagine the invisible um, uh, black-cloaked Japanese figures who were like, oh my god, I can't. Really, the wrong route? Oh. <laughs> and sort of just running back and forth and using ninja mind powers to make the chauffeur go down the thing and arranging it so that Gavrilo Princip is thirsty, like blowing thirsty powder in. And he's like, oh, I, I can really go well, for a coffee. Probably, actually, they didn't intend to do it all along, but when they saw that these other guys were giving assassins a bad name, they had oh, to push, right, yeah. push it over the finish line. Right, yeah, there was... Maybe it was, it was like um, uh, like trading places that the two leading ninja clans had a bet, and it was yeah. like, "Yeah, I'll I'll bet these black hand chappies will be able to take down the archduke." Oh, they'll never do it. Ah, <laughs> uh, you are right. I owe you a yen. <laughs> 
And so the, the notion that the ninjas started World War One is, of course, the, you know, that once you have that, you then have to say, why did the ninjas start World War One? And obviously Robin's theory is, is sound, that they just like to see some assassinating happen. But I think that uh, you can it's also... All, it's all brand management, really. Yeah. You can also look at the, at the fact that uh, Japan, of the major combatants in World War I, came out of it easily farthest ahead. It got its position in China, underlined by the, um, uh, by, the, by the peace treaty. They got to take over all of the German colonies in the Pacific with basically no effort whatsoever. The British brought them into garrison uh, Malaysia and a lot of the uh, British colonies in East Asia because the British troops had to be brought back to the Western Front. So the Japanese were in you know, power positions throughout East Asia as a result of World War I. So the Japanese uh, government obviously planned all of this, uh, and by Japanese government I, of course, mean the uh, gloved on the hands of the ninjas. And uh, it, was, it was basically a big setup, and then something went wrong. You know, the, the two ninjas argued over whether or not they actually owed each other the yen or something. And uh, they, they tried it again, and it just didn't work. They uh, tried to kill FDR in 1933. And once more, since they'd killed uh, Franz Ferdinand with a goof who was no good at anything, they used a goof who was no good at anything to try and kill FDR, uh, a guy named Zangara, who was an Italian anarchist. And he shot the mayor of Chicago instead of FDR. And there uh, laid their mistake. They uh, then had to go through with World War II with the results that we all know. And that suggests an alternate theory, actually, which is perhaps uh, the ninjas actually go around screwing up everybody else's assassination attempts <laughs> in order to maintain their monopoly. Right. That it was the ninjas that uh, jostled Lee Harvey Oswald when he was trying to shoot Governor Connolly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that goes with their, their, you know, their motto and their business cards is right. ninjas, assassinations you can trust. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Like if the the rival Krona um, uh, cheeseburger had been going around and um, you know poisoning the first guy's Krona cheeseburgers. Joining us as sponsor this episode is writer and musician David Maurice Garrett. Those ominous strains you hear are from Dave's album Al Azif. It's a mixture of classical and electronic music. The album follows the career of Abdul Al Hazrid through Lovecraft and the Necronomicon. His music is influenced by such classical figures as Rachmaninoff, Mahler, and Sibelius, and on the soundtrack side of things, John Williams, Hans Zimmer, and Danny Elfman. You can use the music as ambiance or thematic establishment for your next Trail of Cthulhu session, or just creep yourself out. And check out his book of short stories called The Tome of Horror. It contains 32 weird tales. He draws inspiration from Lovecraft, Poe, James, and Blackwood, the sort of high canon of high weirdness. And from the dark woods and darker folkways of his native Alabama. The book is in both print and ebook through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and your other favorite outlets. So check him out at www.davidmaurisegarrett.com or find his album at davidmaurisegarrett.bandcamp.com.
Okay, well, it's time to begin an impromptu segment of Ask Ken and Robin. We have a celebrity questioner from the Great Ether, and that is our pal John Kavalik, sponsor of the show. And uh, he would like us to open the cliché hut uh, to examine the question of what role-playing clichés we really hate. And as an editorial cartoonist, uh, in amongst his uh, muskrat-related activities, uh, John uh, particularly hates and will tweet about really hack editorial cartoons that he sees done and that drive him uh, crazy as clichés. So examples of that would be uh, whenever someone famous dies, the editorial cartoonist will do a cartoon of them being welcomed at the pearly gates. And, uh, you know, so there'd be some little twist where, you know, if, uh, if Federico Fellini is uh, greeting Marcello Mastriani, the pearly gates, whatever. But, you know, basically somebody famous dies. Uh, who, that old canard. Yeah, that old canard. <laughs> and, and then the cartoonist can just draw that and hit, hit the links or uh, play Call of Duty all day long. Uh, other ones are a, a tragedy happens, and so they draw somebody with a single teardrop. Right, uh, often the Statue of Liberty. Often the Statue of Liberty. When they draw sports stars, they draw them facing away. So all I have to do is put the number on his jersey and not draw his face. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also uh, really hates the cliched misdirection setup where you've got like two people looking off screen. So, for example, uh, there'd be two people looking off screen and they'd be saying, look at those people breaking the law. Where are the police? And then the punchline is, those are the police. police. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so these are all cliches that drive John crazy. Um, and I have been sort of struggling to come up with uh, role-playing cliches, because I think in a lot of ways in role-playing, the cliche is your friend, that it's part of the narrative toolkit that you can draw on to sort of all create spo- in spontaneous time a narrative together. And that, yeah, sure, if you saw uh, people just assembling a bunch of uh, weirdo cliches with no particular structure, you know, you would get bad reviews on television or it would be true But <laughs> in a lot of cases, uh, in, in role-playing, uh, cliches are really helpful. So are there role-playing cl- cliches that really uh, burn you, Ken? Well, I, I agree with you certainly that uh, when you're inside a stereotype, when you're inside a, a, a standard trope, you don't recognize it. I've run players through Orpheus a bunch of different times, and the only thing that surprises me is how often they, one of them will look back. Um, it's, it's like you know how the story ends, right? <laughs> Not news, um, but uh, but when you are inside the story, it's exciting because even if you recognize the cliche, as I suspect some of them have, it's fun to be inside the story of Orpheus, right? You you think that that's terrific, and so you, if there's a you know a thing where um, uh, you have to get the rod of seven parts to stop the evil warlord from unleashing the army of orcs. That's fun while you're playing it because, you, you know, the, the reason you're involved in a Dungeons & Dragons game is not because it's going to make a terrific novel someday. It's because the events at the table are interesting or challenging or whatever. And obviously, I would prefer that GMs, uh, you know, reach a little farther and try a little harder. But there's nothing wrong with that basic setup. That said, if I read one more alternate history, and with the steampunk coming along, it is even worse than normal. If I read one more alternate history in which the American Indians... Uh, nothing else happens except somehow they beat the white guy and kept some giant swatch of the West. It, it, it's just sheerest wish casting. I mean, it's really embarrassing. And um, I don't mind if you come up with a reason. And when I did, when we did uh, GURPS as Kali for uh, GURPS Alternate Earths 2, and the order was make the Aztecs win. And it's like, all right, that's impossible. So we went back to 500 BC and had the Phoenicians discover America and bring uh, disease populations so that by the time you get the Aztecs, which is still impossible after that change, uh, they're not all going to die of smallpox. But you really, the notion that 
Um, no, steampunk makes them immune to smallpox and also solves the fact that they are demographically literally less than 1% <laughs> of, uh, of, of European America. That, that'll work. It's like, no, actually, more technology makes the civilized white guys even worse. That's how that works. Yes, so, um, yes. uh, giving the British Empire more crushing ability. Yeah, right. Yes, uh, it's not going to be a but, happy. But situation. now the Sioux Indians have zeppelins. You're really not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> and so the uh, and, and so that is is the thing that really gets up my nose because it is it is sheerly wish casting. It is almost never done, uh, even in the context of oh no, magic came back. And if magic comes back, as long as white guy magic doesn't come back, yeah, then maybe why not? You know, maybe um, uh, Thunderbird or whoever comes out and you know knocks down all of the all the Zeppelins and everything's copacetic, but that's not, I, I really, um, uh, it, it grates on me. I know that there are people who get angry when you get an independent Texas in, in, in future books, but, uh, you know, Texas actually was independent, whereas, you know, the Indians, uh, sadly, did not actually ever manage to hold the white guy back for, from anywhere that was not Arizona for more than 10 years. So, um, Speaking of alternate history, one of my big cliche pet peeves is the alternate history uh, which is radically different from our own, but where all of the major historical figures still appear in the story, uh, it, sometimes in radically different situations. So it's like, you know, you meet Thomas Jefferson, but now he's running the bar that you hang out at. And, <laughs> and all you run into are analogs of famous historical figures. Uh, that one uh, drives me uh, nuts in just uh, fictional alternate history. So I guess, uh, to be fair, that would have to drive me nuts in role-playing alternate history, and that would be mainly the fault of the GM, and I'm much more interested in seeing the GM twist cliches than blaming players for introducing cliches. That uh, uh, If there's any freshness to be introduced into something, assuming that's a good idea and it isn't necessarily always so, that the players are always to be forgiven for drawing on popular tropes, and uh, the GM uh, should mix it up a little, I think. Especially since part of the fun of role-playing is to play an archetypal figure, right? You're playing the sort of, uh, of iconic figure in a lot of cases, or you're playing the sort of figure that has, you know, you know pizzazz, that, that they have screen power, and the way that you do that is you, you, know, you deck them out in sort of understood trope armor or trope uh, garb, so yeah, the, the the detective has a deerstalker hat and a monocle, and he squints at stuff, and all those things happen because that's what makes it fun. That's how you know you're playing that guy. Another cliche that would totally be the GM's fault, and one of the few cliches that I uh, condemn is the Mister Johnson screws you at the end of the mission. Yes, um, and it's true that uh, in a lot of uh, espionage genre stuff and in uh, a lot of uh, gangster, assassin, hitman movies, that that's absolutely the most common plot development. Uh, but it's annoying, the, you know, it was used so often, particularly in Shadowrun, that it's annoying just as a cliche, and even worse, it's disempowering. Yeah. Uh, because rarely are you given the option to figure out ahead of time that the guy's going to screw you. Yeah. It's, it's part of the premise. You have to accept to go on the adventure. It, it's like if every time the old man in the tavern gave you a map, it, it blew up in your hands, right? It's like, well, we're not going to take the map, and then we're going to sit around the tavern, and then no one will have an adventure. Yeah, that's, that's a real jerk move. There's a similar thing that, again, is not so much a role-playing thing, but the, in, the, in the spy genre where it turns out the bad guy was in, the, in your own agency, in, in the Mission Impossible movies, seriously, that's Tom Cruise's job. He's actually just, the only thing he ever does is, you know, worms out moles inside the IMF. There's nothing else he ever does. 
in in that series, and it's just it's ludicrously bad plotting the first time, and it's even worse the fourth time. And that happens sometimes in games, but again, that's mostly the GM's fault if their notion is you know. And it turns out the CIA was bad right. all along. And, and I guess that's actually something that the underlying problem isn't even so much that it is a cliche, but that it is you are being torqued around in a way that you never had an opportunity to address. Right. That you're being punished for being stupid enough to play the adventure that was put in front of you. And, and, th- and, that, and that actually being smart would have been derailing. And right. so you're not just being, you know, quote-unquote stupid, you're also punished for being nice and, and making the GM's life better. So if you wanted to play with that, the idea of there is a mole in your own agency, that you make that, you know, not the surprise reveal at the end, uh, rather... Uh, make it the thing that you had a chance to discover uh, from the get-go. Right. That you were told when you go on the mission, uh, you know, we need you to go to Athens and get this USB drive, and we do really need the USB drive, but also we're trying to smoke out a mole in the operation, and that's actually your primary goal, and the USB drive is the secondary goal. That could be a really interesting way to turn that cliche on its head. And so very often the, the power of cliches lies in the ability to subvert them mm-hmm. and to, uh, you know, what is the reverse of this story? How do, we feel, how do we interact with this fun thing, but do it in a way that takes advantage of the role-playing medium and allows the players to feel smart about it? Right. Yeah. And again, the, um, uh, even the one where if, if it's the spy story as opposed to the old man in the tavern or the Mr. Johnson thing, there's a, re, there, there's a possibility that an NPC that you've gr- grown to know and trust reveals a second agenda or reveals a, a hidden agenda. That's, a, that, that's actually a lot of times that's just good GMing because the notion is that it's like, oh, we're, you've gotten them so invested in an NPC that revealing something else about them is actually interesting as opposed to just another thing, right? If they, if they don't care... Um, uh, who, you know, that, that Mr. Jones worked for the CIA in the first place, they're not going to care that he's actually working for um, uh, the Chinese. But if they did care about Mr. Jones and they were, you know, pulling his ass out of the fire and helping him out and, you know, recovering USB drives left and right, it can actually be an effective thing to do in a story that says, Mr. Jones is working for the Chinese. Do you shop him or do you try and cut out the Chinese guy and flip him again? Right. Now, if spontaneously in the midst of play, players surprise you by doing something that allows you to torque them over royally, they're, of course, giving yourself and by extension them a beautiful gift. So uh, there is a uh, mage campaign that I ran once where one of the uh, scary things that they encountered uh, was this uh, mannequin uh, that had these uh, weird uh, powers that they knew to be very dangerous and troubling. So, <laughs> because you said mannequin. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's on the tag, you yes. know. Uh, you find a ventriloquist dummy. Oh, man. Yeah, man, yeah. Um, Don't worry, it reads as magical. Okay, so... <laughs> So, Ken, what, what is the thing that you do if there's a, something that you know is alarming uh, in that, A, it is a mannequin, and, B, you've been told it's alarming? What do you do with that mannequin? Well, if you're Josh, you dress it in your own clothes and leave it alone for a while. <laughs> he, honest to God, did that in the GURPS Cabal game that I was running. He, he, he dressed a scarecrow in his own clothes on the island and then walked away. And at the time, he was saying, I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> Uh, well, in this case, they took the mannequin back to headquarters, right? Propped it up, gave and, it a badge, and and went away to do something else. <laughs> and then were surprised when their headquarters was ransacked upon their return, and no, some, the mannequin had gone. Weirdly enough, 
it's almost as if the mannequin's weird thing was that it sometimes achieved animation or something. Yeah. Um, and so, and so when they realized that they had, you know, walked into that in spectacular fashion, they all loved the fact that they had been hosed because, of course, they had self-hosed themselves, and it right. was not uh, my plan in the adventure to, uh, to trick them <laughs> into taking the mannequin back to headquarters and leaving it unsecured in the middle of the trophy room. Uh, I, you know, if I'd set that out, uh, you know, as an adventure and, and try to have it published, the editor would, of course, send it back. The players will never do this. That will never happen. That's the great thing about the, um, uh, they're in Nobilis, there's a thing when you buy your chancel, you can get more points for your chancel by buying a bane, which is a thing that is in your chancel and wants to screw with you. Uh, what is a chancel in this context? A chancel is, is the, it's the sort of uh, little headquarters that your Nobilis, your great powers, uh, live in. And in my, in my player's case, it was uh, Warehouse 23, which began as Warehouse 1, being the secret uh, chest that John D. had uh, uh, Francis Drake leave on, um, uh, on Roanoke, uh, Virginia. And uh, warehouses larger have kept being built out from it. And so it, um, uh, it, it, Warehouse 23 was their chancel. So they, uh, they picked a bane. Thank you very much. And it's, it's just a gift that keeps on giving because until they give the points back, Literally anything in Warehouse 23 can be dangerous or toxic or malevolent. And, and by can be, you mean is. Yes, absolutely. And it, it, was, it was great because half the time they would, you know, be talking, we'd, we should probably, you know, keep an eye on this um, uh, elixir of invulnerability. Well, we got to do other stuff. We can't be carrying it around. It's, you know, it could spill. I guess we'll leave it here in the chancel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I think we've wandered well and truly from our yes, uh, original the, brief, yes, which is the, our sign on the podcast to uh, wrap up the segment and cue the theme music. So uh, let's move on to another question. In the back. Um, so modern gaming is pretty much dominated by the genres of fantasy, science fiction, and horror. Um, what other fiction genres do you think could stand to be further developed into interesting areas as a game? Um, well, at the risk of promoting one of my own new things. No, no, Rob. No. <laughs> Don't break your perfect record. Yes. Uh, um, so I, I have a new game called uh, Hill Folk, uh, which is based on a rules engine called Drama System. And what that is is basically a framework that allows you to create the dramatic dynamic of a serialized dramatic show like Breaking Bad or Mad Men or The Sopranos or True Blood or Game of Thrones. Um, and I wrote a, a one setting for it in which you play Iron Age Raiders and then got a lot of other the, of the great lights of role playing, including uh, Ken and Ed Greenwood, who's also here at the show, to write their own settings for it. And a lot of those settings allow for narratives that don't have any adventure element to them at all. But for example, so there's a bunch of science fiction ones that are like classic non-space opera science fiction that are about ideas and the human ramifications of that. There are historical settings that, again, might have an element of violence or danger, but are not adventure settings per se, that they're about people interacting together. And there are a lot of other examples from the indie uh, storytelling movement uh, games that also tackle things that are outside the adventure genre. Emily Kerr-Boss does an interesting series of uh, games based on uh, romance and creating relationships and, and so forth. We've been given the five-minute warning, uh, so maybe we can have some quick lightning round questions. Yes. I'm wondering if there are, if you feel that, that there was something specific about Nazism that lended itself to 
occult interests or whether or not you think that sort of fascistic and authoritarian regimes in general sort of embrace that kind of irrationalism? Well, I, w I would love to believe that it was restricted to fascistic and authoritarian regimes, <laughs> but people be crazy. <laughs> the reason it tends to pop up so much more in fascist or authoritarian regimes is that, you know, you don't have to ask other people, am I being crazy? If you are a dictator or sub-dictator, you can just keep on keeping on with your, you know, hollow earth and your Tibet and the rest of it. Do I look crazy in this does, uniform? Does this? Oh, no. No, you look great, man. Does, you look does, great. Does this obsession with primordial fool make me look weird? No, <laughs> not at all. And, you know, one of the one of the funny things about the Nazi occult is that Hitler actually would occasionally call Himmler out. And, you know, it, he, during a speech at the Nuremberg rallies, he was like, we don't really need to be hunting for mythical giants in Atlantis. We need to be building the awesome new Germany right here. And everyone, you know, in the SS, you know, when that came over the radio, was probably going, <gasps> so, but I, I, I think that the Nazis specifically come out of a milieu that was just soaking in the occult. I mean, and that's, you know, Western Europe. Uh, right after 1900 is is just you know boiling in it. There, there was a huge revival of occultism starting basically as a reaction against the Industrial Revolution, just like Romanticism was, and it had been sort of really you know bubbling along nicely. And so the Nazis were steeped in it, but so were so were the French uh, you know political movements at the same time. So were the Poles, the Russians, of course. I mean, the only reason the communists weren't you know batshit nuts for the occult is because they were. And their their materialism was such a, a you know hardcore part of their ideology that they couldn't really be talking about Atlantis and 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 uh, and wavy hand magic. And even then, there was still a big segment of the Soviet movement that was occultists and believed in Shambhala and you know magic hollow earth. And most of them got purged in 1937 when Stalin was you know sort of you know crossing all his T's and killing all his eyes. Yeah. So while you're purging, you know the the. the Crazy people are the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, so maybe one more quick question. Have you formed a new opinion of the mayor since he's a uh, arm wrestling champion? Uh, well, the, uh, now I understand that really the mayor uh, is governing as a wrestling heel. <laughs> uh, Rob Ford now makes total sense to me. You're waiting. Are, are you waiting for the face turn? Or are you waiting for... Um, <laughs> For, for um, uh, Stone Cold uh, Steve Austin to come out of retirement and flatten him. Well, I, I, all I can say is that, you know, the improbabilities of the storyline make more sense now that I know they're being written well, yeah, by Vince McMahon. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, it, it, I, I don't know why I didn't see it myself. Uh, well, on that most appropriately, uh, Ken and Robin note. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Bundle of Holding. David Maurice Garrett, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem offering going by clicking the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Joining such illustrious listeners as James Chang, Andrew Miller, Arwell Griffith, and Benjamin Hinnom. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>